0: you all of us will immediately think of that disease which we've seen the most and uh, we know is is deadly it's wrong there's going to be an inevitable small number of these people who sneak by us all i can say when it happens is there but for the grace of god go i Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and attorneys of all ages, it's Risk Management Monthly coming to you for November 2016. Rick, you and I just got back from the ASEP uh, convention in Las Vegas. Three of my four talks had to do with medical legal stuff, and uh, I think it went pretty well, actually. How are you doing? Well, you know, I'm still
1: recovering from the place because it was so fricking huge that I needed one of those segues to get around, you know, uh, but, but it was fun, good, uh, connecting with friend, old friends and making new ones. And, uh, Jerry and I gave our traditional talks and, uh, had about eight or 10 people in the audience. And yes. Yes. I stopped. <laughs> it's a very in. humbling experience.
0: Yes. I stepped in to see the eight or 10 people, which, uh, for those of you who haven't been to the Rick and Jerry show is about a thousand people in the room And, you know, I can't understand how every year you guys pack that place uh, telling the same jokes and and, uh, crap to each other that you have for the last 20 or 30 years, but it's gone very well. Well,
1: listen, you've gotten along with the same jokes for the last 30 or 40 years, too. So
0: come on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, No, I believe in recycling and you should recycle humor. It's very important. Hey, listen, I got to introduce our guest. Okay. Uh, Dr. Chuck
1: Pilcher is on the uh, Skype line with us. He's. Uh, do you, uh,
2: Chuck, do you live in Kirkland? Yes, Kirkland, Washington.
1: And you're with uh, Evergreen Health. That's the name of the hospital up there. You're on the uh, board of directors. You're the uh, chair of the Quality and Safety Committee. You had been the director of the emergency department there for 25 years, and um, you had been president of the medical staff. And the way we got connected, well, first of all, you, you've been an EMA subscriber for I think uh maybe half a century or something. Something like on something the order of that, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. But but the way we got connected now is that you publish a thing called Medical Malpractice Insights, Learning from Lawsuits, which is free. And uh you have um make it available. Yeah, Chuck, on- Chuck, we
0: gotta talk to you about that. <laughs> right. You know, free is not good. You know, we're not into free. But uh, Rick continue. Hey, um, Chuck, can you tell us
1: how to uh, get your newsletter? Is there a website or something? that well, affects it?
2: I, Actually, I, I started this as a hobby uh, just because I was a little upset with the fact that we weren't learning anything from the confidential settlements that were being made pre-trial. And... Because some of the things I've been, I started out writing about were a little sensitive, I didn't want to put, the, put it on the internet. So I've just done it as a, news, a, mail, a mailed newsletter, and I'm still, I've only been doing it for a couple of years, and am still trying to work out the bugs as the best way of distributing it. So right now, probably the best way to take a look at it is to go to pilchermd.com. That's actually the site that I use to send a newsletter to attorneys that I've worked with over the last 35 years. And at the top of that website, when you hit it, is a link to Medical Malpractice Insights where you can sign up to read it if you like.
1: Make sure, uh, let me give you a spelling, P-I-L-C-H-E-R-M-D.com.
0: Yeah, you realize, Rick, this guy is our competition. I mean, you and I are simple country doctors here doing the best we can. This guy sounds uh, pretty damn sophisticated, so we better we better read that one and uh, and uh, learn something before we do this show every month. Chuck, by any chance, have you heard Risk Management Monthly?
2: Uh I. I've listened to it uh, in the past, and I listened to it in the, in the last month or two just to check the format and understand what it is you folks do. Um, but no, I'm not a subscriber. <laughs> what the heck?
0: What the heck? <laughs> Other than okay. the fact
2: that you made me a subscriber.
1: Yeah. So you've been doing cases, though, for a long time, 35 yes. years, both Probably. sides of the aisle.
2: Yes, I started out as a defense witness, just helping our own hospital attorney with cases. And the big, the most, the biggest honor I ever had was when a plaintiff attorney that was deposing me called me a hostile witness.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, I've been that, called worse things than that, Chuck. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it happens. Uh, you and I have very similar careers. I go back to nineteen seventy six with my first deposition.
2: Right, but. After he called me a hostile witness and I said, no, I'm just telling tell the truth as I see it. Six weeks later, he called me up and asked me to review a case for a plaintiff.
0: <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> uh, he was just doing his job, as you and I have uh, come to understand it. So, listen, we want to hear some, some of your wisdom here. They've, they've heard Rick and I for, what, 10 or 11 years now. We need, we need some new wisdom. So, Rick, what do you think? What should he tell us? Well,
1: uh Chuck sent us an
0: outline which yes, I thought
1: was uh we could probably this is probably about a week's worth of material here. <laughs> but uh, we he has in the bot well he has a whole bunch of stuff here, but I thought maybe the place to begin was on Chuck's pet peeves. Let him get these out of his system. I think that'll, you know, get the blood pressure down if you get those taken care of.
2: Oh, yes.
0: <laughs> so so, so <laughs> Chuck view this as your Uh, psychotherapy uh, for the month. And uh, Rick and I will scratch our heads and say, hmm, interesting. What else do you think about it? And uh, move ahead. Start off with your number one pet peeve in all of emergency medicine, medical legal work.
1: Well, you you, you may be setting this up a little. I don't know that Chuck necessarily ranked these, uh, you know, in terms of world peace and hunger and those kinds of things, Right. It's, it's, right it's exactly. an assortment
2: here. Yes. All right. Well, actually, I, I think I do have the, my number one pet peeve is chest pain patients who are thought, assumed to be an MI from, from the get-go. When you walk in, you have a chest pain patient and they're worked up for an MI. That's a no-brainer. The things that are missed, and you, you both know this, uh, the things that are missed are PE and aortic dissection. So in my mind, the first thing an ER doc should think about when a patient walks in the door with chest pain is PE and aortic dissection. You can rule those out on history, basically, uh, And if, but if you don't think about them, you're screwed. And so it, I've seen too many cases where everyone is thinking MI and the patient's worked up for an MI. And walks out two days later, dies of a dissection or a PE. And it's so simple to, to diagnose if you think about it. One of no, the traps uh, that people get into is thinking
1: that PEs have you know, sinus tachycardia, S1Q3T3. The vast majority of PEs have normal EKGs, no tachycardia, and, unless they're a monster PE kind of thing. And so it, it gets very misleading. So you have a, a EKG that is not c- consistent with the traditional teachings regarding what the EKG would, would have, and so you you don't even so that doesn't help you. And then you uh, do this cardiac workup, and uh, that's going to be negative because the problem isn't isn't a negative isn't a cardiac problem; it's a PE problem. So I, you can see, how somebody
2: would go home. Yeah, and the same thing happens with dissections.
0: Well I think that if I if I think about the whole thing anchor biasing is a problem you all of us will immediately think of that disease which we've seen the most and uh, we know is is deadly the problem is you have to restrain yourself from going down a pathway till you've at least done some preliminary testing and questioning of the patient. I think that uh, if someone describes to me a terrible onset of a pain uh, that is anywhere uh, but the front, if it's in the back, if it's going down, if there's a neurologic symptom with it, then all of a sudden the concept of dissection uh, has to to come up at least in my mind.
1: Although the problem with that, Greg, is that uh, the majority of dissections are the baggy type one which began at the root of the aorta and go to the apex of the uh, arch right so they're not necessarily back pain uh, cases they are and and uh, they are anterior anterior cases uh so the classic presentation isn't going to be there and in fact one of the real bugaboos here is you have an anterior dissection goes up the right uh goes up the right carotid artery causing a left-sided stroke in a hypotensive patient because they've got this uh, dissection. And that's a classic case of a stroke caused by a uh, a dissection, which is kind of like, if you miss that one, just write the check.
0: <laughs> right. Unfortunately, <laughs> most of us have seen two in our career, Rick. Yeah, that's the uh, point. I, I, looked, that- I looked at the numbers one time and said, how many... How many chest pains will be a dissection? There are about 5,000 a year in the United States. There are 3,900 emergency departments. That means a little more than one a year per emergency department on average, where that same department is gonna see several hundred MIs during that year, and that's the problem.
2: And that's where anchoring bias comes in. And it's, in fact, uh, Greg, I think I heard you say one time that it's much more common for a a, a common disease to present in an uncommon fashion for the, than for an uncommon disease to present in a common fashion.
0: Yes, Greg. Uh, the, uh, the other thing is uh, the P.E. story, I thought I knew when I was a junior medical student what a P.E. was, what an M.I. was. Now I realize after 40-some years, I'm not sure about P.E. at all, and uh, we change all the time the criteria, but I think have something documented on that chart that shows that you've asked the questions about P.E. I mean, it's not 100%, but, you know, if Grandma just got off an 18-hour plane flight from Bhopal, India, where she was having her cancer treated and while there broke her leg. Uh, and I honestly, on birth control pills? And she's on birth control pills uh, <laughs> and has a secondary cancer. I, I think that we can now say that uh, a, a Bayesian analysis would say you don't even have to do the study, just treat her for the P.E. But it's never that easy, is it? You know, we, we argue all the time what's low risk versus no risk. And um, I, I I think that any ER doc who thinks he's got this completely solved, it's wrong. There's going to be an inevitable small number of these people who sneak by us. And uh, all I can say when it hap- when it happens is there, but for the grace of God go I. I've reviewed a lot of these cases, and each one of them frightens the living daylights out of me.
1: Although I agree with Chuck that there are some historical elements that should be addressed. um, Dissections run in families. Uh, There's a very high incidence of of aortic problems in other members. And in fact, uh, last year, Greg, you may remember that in the EMA course, there was actually two 30-minute talks on dissection. And one of the issues was that if you do an ultrasound of the family members of somebody who's had a dissection, you'll find something like in the neighborhood of 20% of them, particularly the males, are also going to have dilated uh, um, major vessels. Uh, And then there's the smokers, the dissections. The The youngest age for dissection has been 19, 19. Pregnant women are particularly prone to dissections that, uh, than not. Uh, this is an extra credit question. What is the animal most associated with aortic dissections? Turkeys. Oh, jeez. Your, yeah. your, your, your fund of knowledge is just, is just extraordinary.
0: Well, that's why the largest consumer of antihypertensives in the United States are not people but uh, turkey farmers and they actually put the stuff in the food <laughs> with the turkeys because the way we've raised them they're so big and fat and stupid that the turkey the turkey's all became hypertensive well, they've got to keep them alive long enough to, to kill be, get get big and butcher them <laughs> oh well, you know, how would you
1: feel if you knew what the end was uh, going to be like and it was around the uh, 10th or 20th of November?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I understand. I'd be a
1: little concerned myself.
0: Yeah, and if the turkey had a th- uh, uh, an opposable thumb and finger, he could shoot himself, but uh, <laughs> they they don't. And so this is the way it goes. You know, right, we're going to we're gonna be doing this hands. list. We're going to be doing this list for the next 11 years unless we get going. Chuck, what's number two?
2: Okay, number two is not walking a patient. Patient comes in on a gurney, maybe even by ambulance, stays on the gurney, gets worked up on the gurney, goes home with by transferring to a wheelchair, and comes back with a cauda equina syndrome,
0: epidural God, abscess. I think I love you. For the <laughs> last 40 years giving, giving neuro talks, I said, uh, hear them talk, watch them walk, look at their eyes. And the one thing that no resident ever does is walk the patient. It tests four neurologic systems. And, you know, when you've actually done it, you can feel so much better. I don't know how you can get away without walking people because they're going to have to go home at some point. So you ought to, ought to know whether they can walk. Well,
1: sometimes people get a wheelchair for convenience, you know, you know, very elderly people who, you know, use walkers and those kinds of things. Yeah, it's okay. But if they were, if they were of the age where they should be walking, they need to walk, walk out. We had a lawsuit at our hospital uh, in association with the cauda equina problem that was missed. And the, the uh, nurse noticed, noticed that the patient couldn't work, walk very well. She said, here, let me get you an a, 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 a wheelchair so they wheeled them out uh and the next day they wheeled them back in and uh it was a uh, it was an obvious problem at that time it's like i agree that is such a uh, great test because of the complexity involved in walking i mean you can walk you can pick up all kinds of things but you got to do it and and especially uh, when
2: they come in with the chief complaint of i can't walk Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well,
1: well, actually, in the case we had, it, it, that wasn't the chief complaint, and, and and it was a little obscure. But the fact of the matter is, is that at the end of the visit, the nurse noted that this guy can't walk very well. Put him in the chair. This you know, this person should certainly have been able to walk. You know, thirty, forty, fifty year old person, and stuck him in the chair to help him out. I'm just going to help you out to the car. That kind of thing.
0: See, knows. I don't have any problem with putting him in a chair to get out after you've seen him walk. The the real problem is this, it's so cheap, it's so easy uh to do. It requires no high technology and it looks at the motor system, it looks at uh the cerebellar system it looks at all kinds of things in the nervous system and it's cheap and easy uh check uh, you're already my hero because you've uh, you've picked on something i've preached on for 40 years
2: right it's a good review number 3 assume every dizzy patient has a posterior circulation stroke that's a tough one you know uh to start with
1: i uh like Greg, I was a really very good at determining central from peripheral vertigo uh, a few years back. And as I've gotten older, I, apparently I have forgotten how to do it because you see these papers now that talk about MRIs and the high percentage of people who you didn't anticipate having a central cause. You thought it was peripheral, but in fact, uh, it, is, it is central
0: yeah, it, but Rick, the, still the reason that people are getting foxed on this is because they don't examine the patients. Uh, the other thing is we presented two papers last year in EMA which talked about the fact that the CT scan is easily 12 hours behind showing a stroke in the posterior fossa. Well, it's and, the wrong study. You yeah, might as well do a barium enema. Right, well, the, the MRI, MRI is still six to eight hours behind the event. Um and I I know that people don't want to hear this, but the physical exam trumps the radiologic study. If they I, have if they have a central finding of any kind, that's what they've got.
1: Oh please don't tell me about the hints test. Yeah well or the hints exam.
0: Uh, you know Rick I know this is painful for you, and I know you're going to have to learn something new, but hints is pretty damn good. And I think we, and it's simple to do, and it doesn't cost you any money. Come on. I
2: I think that even before radiology and, and the exam, I think that the history will tell you more than either one of those. If you have a patient who comes in with neck pain, headache, and dizziness, you should be thinking posterior circulation stroke.
1: I agree. Yeah, I I don't disagree with that, but I'm concerned about the person who just, the room is spinning around and and you think it's uh, peripheral. You're going to be right the vast majority of times. Actually, we just did a paper. One of the papers we did at ASAP, actually, looked at some huge number of patients discharged. I think this was in Canada. Looked at something like 5,000 patients who were discharged with what was believed to be peripheral um, vertigo, and they followed them uh to uh see who of them ultimately developed some kind of strochoid kind of thing and um the number was really very 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 small the It was a very reassuring paper about at least what Canadian doctors know about sending people home who are dizzy
0: yeah, good gold area and uh, they uh they watch a lot of hockey. Going back and forth, up and down, they get that lateral gaze. Nystagmus happens all the time. But I, I like the fact that you've reiterated the, the correct point, is that most of these people are okay. But do the exam that looks at the posterior fossa. It takes you about a minute. And if you – ooh, what's that? Um, uh, but if you us, do that exam, you'll pick up those patients,
1: Rick. Give us the Greg Henry posterior fossa exam. In 30 seconds.
0: Okay, here it is, 30 seconds. Number one, watch the patient walk. Number two, finger-to-nose, rapid alternating movements. Have them smile, stick out their tongue, phonate, and uh, you've looked at the posterior fossa cranial nerves. And, of course, you're obviously going to do, in anybody with these complaints, uh, you're going to do extraocular movements. If they have lateral gaze nystagmus, single direction lateral gaze nystagmus, that is is peripheral vertigo, uh, with the rest of the with the rest of the posterior fossa being normal till proven otherwise.
1: Yeah, and I always got some comfort when these people were sitting rigidly in the gurney. Not willing to move their head one inch to either side because it was <laughs> going to make the room go around. Kind of right. thing. I felt comfortable with those people.
0: By the way, checking the uh, peripheral, uh, the extraocular movements. You do cover on cover for skew. You know, cover one eye, see where they're staring. Take the take the hand off, look and see how the eyes move. If they have minimal movement. They don't have one eye, the covered eye that's gone in 10 different directions. That's normal. Everybody should have a skew checked, which, again, uh, you're talking about a five-second exam.
1: Uh, the test of skew is um,
0: part of the so HINTS
1: exam. You, you, uh, they're looking at your nose. You cover one eye, and uh, they and you um, then move the cover away. And if that, if one eye is not looking right at your nose again and has drifted into some other direction, they have flunked the test of skew.
0: Yes. But you know what? I've never seen anybody have just one thing wrong. If you've got a stroke in the posterior fossa, you're going to have more than one finding. What I think is strange is people don't do any of those tests. They send them over for a CT scan. It comes back negative, and they think they've got the answer, and that's not right.
1: Any Chuck uh, thoughts, Chuck? No, I think you've covered it.
2: Damn. Yeah, you guys are good. <laughs> uh, number three. Uh, this would be number four. Um, number four. And this is, uh, <laughs> uh, let me preface this with, I started writing this medical malpractice insights learning from lawsuits uh, newsletter about two years ago, three years ago, after seeing being- call, being contacted about a spinal epidural abscess and four months later, I got called about another one and within a year or two, I had five or six cases of spinal epidural abscess and that's just in Washington state alone and most of them were egregiously missed, and I thought to myself, you know, why can't, you know, why can't we learn from these things? And so the my, the fourth one I would say is that every back pain, pain. I mean, I've now done 12, 13, 14 spinal epidural abscess cases, and most of them are settled on behalf of the plaintiff. Some of them are defense, but... Uh, the point is that every back pain patient has a spinal epidural abscess, till proven otherwise, or caught equinus syndrome. And it's so easy to document that they don't that you don't have to always do tests to rule it out. But you have to think about it again. You can't be anchored to the fact that they are a drug seeker or that they're they've had chronic back pain because chronic back pain patients develop spinal epidural abscesses.
0: Yeah, and, and if- excuse me, drug seekers, drug drug addicted patients. That's actually a risk factor for having a spinal epidural abscess. I think the biggest problem is these people have a disease which you've got a disease in a group of patients which most emergency docs don't necessarily like to begin with. Right. If you suppress all of your personal thoughts, check their sensation, you check your reflexes, Check uh, you know extensor health as long as function, and a few other things don't don 't bother about what the patient's saying about their pain or this or that. you won 't miss any of those cases also well, walking them is useful.
1: Yes, let me take it back um, there. These cases can come in with back pain with, without any neurologic deficits whatsoever, and just have back pain. Uh, that are, they can come in without any kind of compression of anything. But the fact is that they have, they have pain. They have an abscess, which is generating that pain. And you have to look at the temperature. If the temperature is over 100.4, that's officially a fever. Fever and back pain, you've got this diagnosis until proven otherwise. The other thing is, is that another clue is generally if you press hard – on spinous processes, nothing hurts when you do that. And anybody who has back pain, if they, if you, but if you press hard and it hurts when you do that, that's one of the tip-offs. It's not always there, but if you find it, it helps uh, go along with the with the uh, diagnosis. And the other thing too is, as you mentioned, Greg, not only do drug seekers, you know, drug users get this because they're seeding their their um, bloodstream with bacteria all the time. And for some reason, bacteria like to grow back there. Uh, But there's all of these people who have hardware in them. They've got knees, and they've got hips, and they've got shoulders, and they've got screws here and there. All of those increase the risk of spinal epidural abscesses through seeding of the bloodstream. And so if anything, these are going up in frequency, not down.
0: Again, when I look at these, and um, I have a series over the years like Chuck does, all kinds of people have shot the wrong study. A CT scan, unless you're doing a matricimide CT, a, a CT scan does not diagnose these people. Just forget it. You know, I've, I've had people say to me on the phone, well, just do a CT. No. That's not the answer for it. it. was my kid, and I was worried. I'll send him someplace else if I need to, but I want an MRI and people reading it who know what they're looking at because otherwise it's a waste of time.
1: The other thing the literature points out is where the pain is is not necessarily where the abscess is. No. Nope. So And so you need to kind of be generous about what you're shooting here. Uh, uh, if oh, they have a go- lot
2: if they have lumbar pain and you do a lumbar MRI and it's negative, that doesn't mean you're done.
1: No. Right. I'm going to give you one other uh, bucata pearl here about this. Uh, if you have pain in the thoracic spine on bending forward, that is a very atypical finding because the thoracic spine, when you bend forward does not move. The things that move are the lumbar spine and the cervical spine, but the thoracic spine is rigid. So that I, so there are no mechanical things of consequence happening when you flex the uh, forward. But if you have a spinal epidural abscess and that causes pain in the thoracic spine, that's another tip off that maybe that's what the problem is.
0: Many so years ago, I had a patient who helped me out when he came in with his back pain. I said, Everything like this before he said, well, the last time I had an abscess on my spine it felt like this <laughs> i I said thank you God <laughs> you know the, sometimes the patient does tell you what you need to know any thoughts Chuck uh,
2: no that covers it uh, the the one thing I would add is that i I would give most docs a pass on the first visit for missing a spinal epidural abscess. Somebody comes in with back pain, they may not have fever. They may not have neurologic symptoms, but the pain may be a little atypical. But if, it, if they're coming back two and three times in a week for the same problem, you've got to be thinking about it.
0: That's the, the exact story that I have in most of my cases. It's the third visit where now their legs are weak, Uh, And, you know, the first visit, you're right. Most of us could miss that, no problem. Uh, But when you got a second visit, you do have to think about this a little bit.
1: Well, I do think that you have to be really careful because if there's enough information on the first visit and you blew it because you didn't notice the uh, little great fever, you didn't do a decent exam, you didn't get a a reasonable history And they come back basically substantially neurologically compromised the next day. I think they're going to have your head. And all of these are big-dollar cases.
0: Yeah, well, they can't walk. Uh, Rick, you gave a talk uh, called uh, The Red Flags. And um, the red flags are just that simple. There are only five or six questions you need to ask. But if you don't ask those, you got problems.
1: You know, the other thing I think that this helps kind of talk about is We need to be willing to do more uh, MRIs. Uh, The idea that well, it's a kind of a special test. It's not available after four o'clock in the afternoon. That the MRI basically gives there's all of these indications that relate to emergency medicine now. Pregnancy in uh, appendicitis in pregnancy. Uh, Radio, you know, uh, um, a gamekeeper's thumb. A navicular yeah. fracture, that's what you need. You need an MRI for a navicular fracture rather than being a cast for two weeks, which is 1960s kind of treatment. And posterior fossa problems, the, uh, the spinal epidural abscesses. And I think there's going to be a growing, growing use of MRI. Uh, and we don't order them very often in an emergency department at all because it's think, well, that's not an M- ER kind of test. I think yeah. it's an ER test.
2: All right. Want one more? Sure, sure. Uh, unless it's really something straightforward, sh- document some form of a differential diagnosis to show that you were thinking about the patient and what the problem could be. And in the in the charting, your medical decision making is far more important than any tests you choose to do or not do. Just to show that you actually thought. This through, especially in this era of template charts and electronic charting and check boxes and all that, you've got to put down something about medical decision making and differential diagnosis, except in the most simple cases.
1: Chuck, I see in your notes here you have a um, an opinion regarding uh, template charts.
2: They suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's okay.
0: Yeah, well, the problem is this: I I have all kinds of cases where Somebody has pushed a button and a a two-page history and physical has printed out. And when you go around and say, did you really do two-point discrimination in every toe? They say, nah, well, that's just written on the chart. You know what? That doesn't go well in court. Do what you write down. Write down what you do. But don't lie about stuff. It's not worth it.
2: And don't depend on your macros to hold you up in court.
0: Well, that, yeah, macros I've seen discredited so many times that – and when they can discredit your macro, they've basically put you in the position where now you've got to prove yourself. Uh, now and, – and I've heard that line from attorneys. How much of the rest of this chart is a lie, doctor? And I, I think that uh, that's effective – that's effective in court. We need to stay away from it.
1: Chuck, one of the issues about putting down a differential diagnosis is, I guess you have to say what you've done to exclude um, this element, that element, that element of a, in your differential. And said, sometimes it's difficult to, to exclude them all you, because you're only doing a partial diagnosis. Uh, Exclusion. I mean, if you put down, well, it could be gallbladder, it could be appendicitis. Well, the gallbladder tests are ultrasounds, and the appendicitis test is a CT scan. So you really haven't necessarily. Uh, um, and the white count is 11,000 for both of them. So I, I personally have a little difficulty when you say, I have excluded within reasonable probability these other diagnoses, and that's why I support this uh, this diagnosis.
2: Let me ask will, Greg, Greg a question here about that because I think that if you document that you've thought about it and you can say that I've thought about spinal epidural abscess or appendicitis or whatever, and and for whatever reason, just on history and exam alone, that you think about it and have excluded it in your differential, I think that stands up fairly well in court. Am I correct, Greg?
0: Yeah, I'm going to support both of you here a little bit. One of those is, you know, Zachary Cope's book on the abdomen has 176 disease entities. You're not going to talk about all those, but the common disease in a 16-year-old boy with right lower quadrant pain, if you don't mention that you've talked about or thought about appendicitis and told the parents, this is what we're gonna do, we're gonna watch, we're gonna repeat the exam, that sort of thing. Uh, you're sort of out of it.
1: Yes, uh, but have you have you also put down there uh have you looked at the uh, testicle on that side?
0: Well, I do. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, a boy with with right lower quadrant pain examining the testicles is a part of the exam. Check your up. Okay. Uh Let's see, we've
2: covered template charts. Uh, I think the only, you know, I I think we're kind of past the point of TPA and stroke, but I'm sure both of you have seen far more cases of uh, failure to offer TPA and document or document why it isn't appropriate in stroke patients than you have complications of giving it. And so I think that if you have a stroke patient, it just saves everybody a lot of time and hassle if you put a comment in your chart that TPA is inappropriate at this point. Um, I've had a discussion with the patient, and uh, they don't need it. They don't qualify. The, well, even the, if they do qualify, I think
1: that uh, there's this issue about shared decision-making now. Correct. Yes. Where you uh, were, But shared decision-making requires... That you be able to provide the patient with reasonable information that they can make a uh, intelligent decision, and I think that that's often not the case. Uh, you know, I don't want to be a broken record on this, but um, if you use the NINDS trial, twelve uh, percent of the patients got better, six percent of the patients got worse, and the vast majority had no benefit. Uh, and I think that we. Often view this as the clot busting miracle drug, when 84 uh, um, percent get no benefit, six percent get harmed. I think that we we when we frame it in those numbers, people say, well, might say, okay, well, I'll take my chances then. Um, but you can't just say, well, some people get strokes and bleed uh, with it, this stuff, and some people don't, and. Uh, You can't make a decision using that kind of loose terminology.
0: I'm getting the sense that the discussion we're having right now is um, five years old. The, The real thing that's happened is nobody has shown that in the posterior fossa, anything works. TPA was, has never been tested that way. Nobody has shown that you can suck out a clot in the posterior fossa. But since 2014 and the papers in 2015, including the Mr. Clean trial, you've got to have another discussion with the family, and that is there's some pretty decent numbers being posted. And, Rick, you've got to agree with this, that by sucking out the clot on patients. You know, if I had one right now and and I went to an ER and we were an hour away from a hospital that could do the sucking out of the clot, it was anterior uh, stroke, I'd ask to be transferred. I'd have it done to me.
1: Although this is a great opportunity for what indication creep. All of those studies had very strict criteria for, um, Bringing patients into the study, and uh, I'm, and I think what's go- what's going to happen. I think I already see it happening, is that people take the position, yes, this is a serious stroke. You don't quite meet the criteria in Mister Clean. However, I really believe I can get this get this clot, and um, I'm familiar with a a fellow who can take a clot out of just about any vessel you can think of and they're not going to sit there and stand by when in fact this person is substantially compromised and they're going to and they're going to kind of say well it's not within protocol but i really think i can help you and well, that's what's
0: happening i understand mission creep and i understand that it it goes crazy and gets all blown out of proportion but to not talk to the family about what is available at this moment in time, I think that's the problem. Oh, I've I agree. just read cases from, from this month uh, that people have asked me to look at, and, you know, there's no evidence there that they spoke to the family about this possibility, um, which in the anterior fossa, if you can reach it through the carotid, and the middle cerebral artery. Why not? You know, I'd have mine done at this moment in time. And I'm a conservative. <laughs> I, 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 if I was had, if I had an arm that didn't work and couldn't talk, I'd have it sucked out.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, that's the, that's the next level. So the really for us, the a- answer really is transfer, for because most of us don't have facilities that have that capability. And I think that like in Los Angeles. There is this move afoot to have these, you know, quaternary uh, stroke centers where they have these guys who can take clots out of uh, just about any, any any artery, and you may be there may be some system set up that bypasses even the stroke center to go to the uh, the highly specialized center because it was demonstrated in Los Angeles at least that uh, paramedics can be taught. To reasonably identify strokes in the field,
2: that's my con- <clears throat> my concern is, or not necessarily concern, but question I suppose is, what what are where are we headed with this interventional radiology that can remove clots? Are we going to end up with just a few, or what? Maybe one stroke center in every major town, or what? No, I can tell you they all, like in most things, all of the. Uh,
1: uh-huh. Hospitals want to be the regional stroke center. Uh, and uh, our hospital, it's five minutes away. I'm on their foundation board now, has gotten, is is just like proud as punch that they have gotten this fellow who can take out clots. And they want to be the uh, regional center for around here. And I know for a fact that there's a hospital probably five miles away, Huntington Hospital. You know that, Greg. Very that, well that they're the big deal hospital and they have a guy too. Um, but
0: listen, this shouldn't be a guy because if you say we've got a guy, that means he's got to have time off. You know, most of the discussion we're having, uh, you can carry on that discussion in Chicago, L.A., maybe San Francisco, maybe New York. You can't carry that on in the state of Michigan. There's, There's maybe seven hospitals in a, in this state that can do it. And I think that uh, the emergency doc is now going to be charged with knowing where they can go, can they get it done, th- you know, 24-7, 365. Those are the kinds of things you're going to need to know. Um, and by the way, uh, Michigan's a big state. Most of it has no people in it. But the bottom line is we can get you from... Uh, ishpaming michigan to uh to ann arbor uh by air if we need to um and you know if if i had a stroke in ishpaming that's where i'd want to i'd want to you know, be transferred
1: we are kind of just in the infancy of this um <clears throat> further regionalization of uh of stroke care that's that's for sure yep hey greg do you remember uh the uh the ambulance that they had in the uh Exhibit Hall? Yes. <laughs> they had a million-dollar ambulance that had a CAT scanner in it, and it was uh, going to be used for the regional care of suspected stroke patients. Apparently, I think Cleveland, Houston, it started in Germany, where they came up with this ambulance with a CAT scanner in there, which is a basically bleed, no bleed kind of. It's a TPA generation kind of um, uh, 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 process but it was like, how would you ever have a system for the city of Cleveland that would have these CT ambulances? How would you know where to send the uh, where where to send them, when to send them, how far to send them?
0: Yeah, I I, I I think it's technological overkill, and it gets away from the basic science and what we know at this moment in time. I think it's I think it was lovely as a toy. I don't see it uh, in uh, outer Montana as the way to go with this sort of thing,
2: Chuck. What do you got? Uh, that's probably enough pet peeves. Um, I got a few examples of each of those, if, if we wanted to go over them. But uh, you're I guess you're some, in charge. Well, how about we chat a little bit about knee dislocations? That uh, knee a uh, knee dislocation. Whether you whether it comes in dislocated or you find out that it was dislocated and self-reduced, is a vascular emergency, not an orthopedic emergency.
1: Yep, I think that that's kind of a, a, a given. The idea here is uh, you have a this hugely blown up knee, and uh, they all have an extraordinary amount of blood associated with them around the knee joint, or, uh, what was left of the knee joint. But the idea is, yeah, the, the classic teachings are that most of these go back um, uh, into place, largely because everything has been around them has been ripped up, and that you can't, can't, can't miss it. You can't, this is, this is not a, the x-ray will be normal. There will be a huge effusion. Uh, you put them in a, I can't envision somebody putting somebody into a, some kind of knee immobilizer and giving them crutches and sending them out. Uh, I take it you've seen cases of
2: of malpractice associated with uh, knee dislocations? Yeah, I was just looking at this one case where a guy gets his knee, he described it as, I got my knee tangled up, and it spontaneously reduced into a normal position. He went to see his uh, physician, or they went to the ER, and it, the knee looked normal. It may have been a little bit swollen. X-rays were normal, like he said. He's diagnosed with a neck strain or a, a knee strain and sent home, I assume in a knee immobilizer. And two days later, he comes back with persistent pain and numbness below the knee. On exam, he has no distal pulse. He's immediately referred to a vascular surgeon, and the MRI shows disruption of every ligament in his knee. Oh, yeah. And, and clearly, an exam was not done in that case. Uh, but. You know, he ended up with an amputation. So, really, you can't depend on what the X-ray looks like or what uh, you know. It's it's you're going to be able to pick it up on your exam. Yeah.
0: Let me tell you, I've just I've just done a case which uh, had to do with a um, rodeo rider who was injured, went to a hospital. And the emergency doc knew there was going to be a vascular compromise and a um, a compression syndrome uh, developing. He sent them to the hospital, and the hospital forgot to mention to him that their vascular surgeon was off that weekend. So they're suing. They're suing the emergency doc for not specifically securing where this patient was going to go because it would have been a half hour further to go to a major university hospital where they would have had a vascular fellow or somebody ready to take this guy to the operating room.
1: Well, in the mTala situation, the receiving hospital has to agree that they have the capability to handle the problem. Oh, Rick on a do- both? On a doctor-to-doctor <laughs> call.
0: Both hospitals were sued, Rick. Don't you worry. <laughs> yeah, do they, I, feel, I feel better about that. Now you feel, I know, now oh, you feel yeah, better about it. this. But, you know, this kind of stuff has nothing to do with integral calculus. This is like asking two or three questions like, uh, can, you, uh, can you actually take care of it? Is the guy available tonight to take this guy to the operating room? Because most of this stuff is, is not genius level material. And uh, both hospitals are paying out big time on this case. And it's it's unfortunate.
2: Greg, was this a case in Washington State? Because I have that case.
0: Um,
2: Or one identical to it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Actually, I'm trying to think right now, and I can't say that. But what I know is in the western states, high school rodeo is a big thing.
2: Now, this, was not a, this was not a rodeo case. This was a, actually this was an adult female in her 30s that fell down, twisted her knee, came into the to a rural clinic, uh, sort of an ED, with a dislocation that was obvious and was seen by a PA. Uh, the PA called his family physician who was on call for the rural clinic, and they together they talked to an orthopedic surgeon at a hospital who said, "Well, you go ahead and reduce it," and send her away and they reduced it her pulses may or may not have gone away at that time they called the referral hospital who said yeah send her down and I I suspect that what they said was we have a lady here with a dislocated knee and how many times do you really see a dislocated knee when I hear dislocated knee I think patellar dislocation and I bet that's what the referral hospital referral hospital was thinking so yeah we can take care of that no problem so six hours later, she eventually arrives at the referral hospital. Uh, they had claimed that they did have an orthopedic surgeon that was available, but when they found out it was really a dislocation, they found, that uh, found out their vascular surgeon was not available. She ended up 12 hours later at a tertiary care hospital and lost her leg.
0: Yep. Yeah, and, and see, that's sort of the blocking and tackling that you don't have to have any particular knowledge of anything to do. Just say vascular injury probably ought to be taken care of in the next two hours or you're going to have big-time trouble. Yep. And I, I I just think that ought to be the knee-jerk response, so to speak, the knee-jerk response uh, with these kind of cases. The knee-jerk response, great. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's why I use that term.
2: Chuck, what else do you have here? I'm oh, at this. Did you ever cover the case of the HIPAA violation in the, by the pharmacist a couple of years ago? I thought that, you want, this one's a little humorous. Go Interest, ahead. Okay. <laughs> this one, uh, one go, a woman goes to a pharmacy to fill a prescription. The female pharmacist who fills the prescription is married to a man whom the woman previously dated. The pharmacist suspects because of the prescription, that the woman had infected her husband with an STD. So she accesses the patient's prior prescription history. This is at, I'm thinking this was a, yeah, Walgreen Drugs. Uh, She then tells her husband, after she goes home from work, what she found, and uh, the husband then texts his ex-girlfriend, who was the pharmacist's patient. And the Patient then learns that the pharmacist had told her ex boyfriend, now the pharmacist 's husband uh, that about her medical history and a HIPAA violation was filed, and uh, that one was actually worth one point eight million dollars against the pharmacist and the and walgreens
0: yeah, wow. and, and you know what <laughs> i 've seen very similar stories where people have looked up records in a in a uh, in a hospital, you know from this boyfriend or that girlfriend, just understand don 't go looking there 's a record of it now everything 's recorded on the computer um, and if it, it, this is on a need to know basis if you don 't have a medical need to know something don 't look it up and please don 't talk to anybody else about it. I was involved in a um, panel in Southern California, where we were going through hospital HIPAA violations. All of them are funny stories, and they're all a disaster. And by the way, the feds have no sense of humor about you releasing information on a sort of a serendipitous basis. Um, The word is you don't talk to your wife. You don't talk to your kids. You talk to other healthcare professionals as needed, and that's it.
1: Yep. Chuck, was that a uh, HIPAA violation, which then became a um, civil suit? Yes, it. Uh, because it, HIPAA it, is it, not going to charge you twenty five uh, one point six million dollars.
2: Yeah, no, they, it was a civil suit that uh, involved. Uh, Not only the HIPAA violation, but the emotional distress caused by the the violation of HIPAA. And the the defense had no defense. I mean, the metadata, obviously, as you say, Greg, uh, confirmed that the pharmacist had done this and the pharmacist admitted it. And the pharmacy's defense was you operated outside of your scope of practice and, you know. Like, was this, don't, do, don't do that
0: sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. well, of course not. I, I, one of the hospitals represented in the discussion I was in, in it was in uh, Santa Monica, um, it was, uh, was Cedars. And Cedars, of course, is Hospital of the Stars. And they have people from TMZ and this and that and another thing who are trying to get information. Uh, bottom line, you call up a patient's record. And you can't defend why you're doing it from a medical standpoint. It's automatic dismissal, yep. and that's it. They have to do that because it became it became a circus, and uh, people could double their income that year by re- releasing something to one of the uh, one of the um, uh shows that does this kind of work. Uh, do we have time for a, a letter, Rick? Yes, we do. Okay. Um, this is from Jeff Anderson and, um, Jeff said we could use his name. Uh, and Chuck, we want your opinion on this too. Um, he says, I have a question. I occasionally work in a small rural hospital. that has only two general surgeons and one full-time orthopedic surgeon. All three of them try to support the hospital. However, they are not on call 24-7-365. Because of their desire to take call, they have told us it's okay even when they're not on call, they have clearly listed days when there's nobody filling the call list. We can call them, and if they're there, they'll come in. I thought that was really good of them. Um, he thought that this was a sort of variation in the MTALA rules. Uh, what do we think about that? And um, I'll let you guys jump in first, and, and then I'll straighten everybody out. Go ahead. Chuck, what do you think? Uh, what I'm thinking
2: of is that this reminds me of a case that I reviewed involving uh, a uh, cardiothoracic surgical event where the hospital actually had two cardiac surgeons. Both of them were tied up at the time. And so what was the hospital supposed to do? They couldn't get this patient who needed emergency surgery into the OR. Um,
0: Chuck, let, let's straighten this out before we go further. When you said they were tied up, you mean the, they were the, otherwise occupied. They were not into some crazy psychosexual thing. Is that right? No,
2: that's correct. Yeah. They were in Thank the you. OR doing good work. Thank both. you. <laughs> and uh, and so the question is, you know, when when even if even if you have two or three orthopedic surgeons on call, one of them can be out of town, one of them can be unavailable, and the third one may be on call but busy in the OR. And if you have a, a, an emergency, may not, you may not be able to get the service you need. So I, I'm not sure I can really answer your question, Greg, because there's a lot of different ramifications to it. And I think we just need to do the best we can and do, always do the right thing for the patient.
1: Yeah, EMTALA does not require that the on-call surgeons or specialists be immediately available Uh, They they can be doing surgery, and the surgery that they can be doing could be long, drawn-out surgery. Um, So there are these kind of, in essence, loopholes in Amtala. Um, I think that the system that was described in the letter is a perfectly reasonable system. Absolutely. Um, There are lots of hospitals down here who have ENT doctors only on certain days of the week. Yep. But – But they're good-hearted, and they say, listen, (laughs) I'm not on call, but give me a call, and if I can help you, I will. They're not on the call schedule. They're not obligated to come in. They come in to do you a favor. So the guy says, to tell you the truth, I really can't come in, so follow what the protocol that you would have if I wasn't on call.
2: Right, we've had that same problem with ophthalmology. Uh, The ophthalmologist was kind of dropping off the call schedule, and there was always one that just said, call me if I'm available, I'll help you out. And, I mean, that's in a suburban hospital, yeah. something similar to L.A.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, you guys are very smart. Um, I think that, uh, Jeff, here's the message. Yeah, your people are going above and beyond the call of duty here. Um, we're, we're proud of them. Keep them coming. Here's the one thing you can't do is at your hospital – if you get a call from another hospital, don't receive a transfer in. You probably don't because you're a small hospital, but you'd never uh, receive a transfer unless you knew you had those people on call to, t- to take care of the problem. That, w- that would be an M.T.A.L.A. mistake if you're doing that. But if these guys are willing to come in um, – and because and, otherwise, you're going to have to transfer the patient out anyway. I mean, God love them. I, uh, I think it's good that they support the hospital, and uh, I would keep that going if I could.
1: And that's not a unique uh, situation whatsoever. I, I think lots and lots and lots of hospitals have that. And we also had it for uh, ophthalmology, just as uh, you talked about, Chuck.
0: Yeah. By the way, we tend to, as we speak, the three of us, have sort of a suburban or big urban mentality. You know, most of America has nobody in it. There are all kinds of places which have nothing and small hospitals. One of my friends who's in Iowa, in fact, he's chair at the University of Iowa, points out half the emergency departments in Iowa are staffed by PAs and they're small volume, and they have to transfer a lot of stuff. And so I think that uh, that 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 all of these transfer questions really do depend on what kind of situation you live in.
1: We've got about fifteen minutes left, left, guys. So, if you have anything further you'd like to discuss, how um, about
2: how about we? Uh, I, one one interesting topic is this one on uh, discharging a patient who refuses to sign a no harm contract. And what's he, that? What's no-harm contract, Chuck? Oh, well, at least in our our hospital. I promise I
1: don't commit suicide kind of thing.
2: Yeah, right. uh, I promise to call somebody if I feel like I'm going to kill myself. I won't harm myself without contacting someone. And I'm not sure the value of those at all. But uh, this one hospital in the Midwest, a patient was brought to the ED for clearance prior to jail after being arrested after a, a police chase, and when he... When the police were arresting him, he grabbed a knife and started cutting his wrists. And and yet, when he got to the hospital and it was a fairly brief exam, he had to put some steri strips on his wrist and and sent him off to jail. But uh, the social worker had talked to him briefly and wanted him to sign a no harm contract before he went to jail. He refused. Would you discharge that patient to the police and go to, let him go to jail?
0: What's your alternative?
2: A little more, a little more thorough intervention on his psychiatric status.
0: You know, um, we'd all like to think that we have these services available, and the answer is we don't. Psych in America is in crisis. Uh, we have them sitting around emergency departments. If this guy is under, and and the other thing that will make you unpopular is if this guy is in police custody, and you say no, we have to keep them there. Um, it better be for something specific, and it better be for something we can take care of in a short period of time, because the police have now tied up two police officers who are going to have change of shift and everything else. Um, it's not a simple question, those you, uh, those you keep and those you don't. And I, uh, you know, it's always easy as the uh, Monday morning quarterback to say what we have done I think these are tough situations.
1: Well, you know, getting more specifically to this idea of refusing to sign a no-harm contract, that kind of uh, is uh, a little alarming. Uh, And it's like, I'm telling you, I'm not signing that thing. Uh, It would suggest to me that um, sending that person to jail— might be viewed as uh, dangerous. This person has already told you. Now, yes, the, what he did before with the uh, with the uh, cuts to the wrists, which were were nominal. Um, you know, I, I still think that there, this. If, if anything happens, they're going to be able to say the, the, guy, the guy told
2: you he's not going to sign it.
1: So he didn't kill he, himself in
2: jail. Hung himself in jail two days later.
1: Damn! Right on. <laughs> My conclusion was he can't go.
0: Well. Perhaps for the first time in his life, um, he was well hung. But uh, this, is, uh, this is one of those situations which is very difficult to predict. I mean, I, I've had a bunch of those. You can tell the police when you're taking them out, put them on watch precautions, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, eventually, sight does come. They look at the patient. Um, they come up with some sort of program, and it's it's the it's the very unusual community that has both a psych unit in a in a jail situation that can handle these sorts of things. Wouldn't you agree, Chuck? I mean, it's it's hard to know what to do.
2: Yeah, in this particular incident, the patient was trying to bargain his way out of going to jail. Of and- course. And he he, right. he said I, I would I'll only sign the no harm contract if you don't send me to jail. Yes. And, <laughs> uh, and it, you know it didn't work. They ended up. Uh, the 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 plaintiff was saying that a a jail is for incarceration, not suicide prevention. That was the plaintiff's argument. I think yes. it's a,
1: I think it's right on. I think that um, this would have been very inconvenient to hold that person in the ER. But he's already basically playing the game. I'm not signing. If I'm not signing, what are the implications of that? I think you have to, I think that you need to get a psychiatrist to see him, and you can't do it, you can't take that on by yourself.
0: Yeah, getting a psychiatrist actually come in. I haven't worked in a place where a psychiatrist comes in in years. I or, mean, the, or, or some
1: suicide assessment team.
0: Yes. And remember, most people I, I, on the suicide assessment team I know. I know. were patients two years ago. And, and I think that, that uh, you're still the doc. You're the guy with the license and the insurance. Uh, if you don't agree with that assessment team, then you have to step in and do something. Yeah,
1: that's a really important point, Greg. These guys who come in, suicide prevention, whatever they call themselves, are rendering you an opinion. They're giving you a consult, and like any other consult, it is you who are free to choose to accept the recommendations or not. The ball still lies in your court.
2: The other part of this case I think that we need to bring up is that uh, it's not the no-harm contract. Their signature on the form is not what's going to protect you, but your documentation of the conversation you had in preparation and uh, accomplishing that signature on the no-harm contract. Although it's interesting, the case
1: case that as you presented it, uh, Chuck, sounds for all the world like this guy didn't want to go to jail, slashed his wrist as an attempt to avoid jail— uh, but it was just they—they they were just you know scratches kind of thing, and you, you for all the world it would sound like this person really is not suicidal. They just don't want to go to jail.
0: Correct. Yeah, he has a he has a terminal sociopathy, and um, and I think we see these folks you know five times a night in the department. And um, again, the retrospectoscope is always good, but it's it's tough to know what to do sometimes. I, I think each one of us has had a case that's gone back to jail, that's had to come back in alive or dead, and we think, my God, should, have we, should we have done this or that? But uh, you're limited in your resources in most hospitals, uh, and I think the worst area, if I had to pick an area that's bad across the board in America when I look at hospitals, it's psych.
1: Chuck, one of the things that you had down on your list was, and I think it would, we, we don't have a lot of time left, but I, we have a couple of minutes that I think we're, we can talk about. You say, don't disregard abnormalities reported by the EKG computer without documentation.
2: Yeah, that, I had that, that case. This was just one where uh, the EKG, the computer, reports an abnormality. I don't even remember what it was, but uh, the... Physician just said this, uh, says the EKG is normal. Um, when that happens, you have to be a little more thorough than that in documenting why you disagree with the computer. Uh, you know, I basically just say you aren't always smarter than the computer. We'd like to think we are sometimes. Um, any thoughts on that, Greg?
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot of these where it will say nonspecific STT wave changes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I had a guy who was on the stand, and the plaintiff said, um, you thought the EKG was normal? He said, yes. He said, read what it says on this, what what the machine read it as. He says, that doesn't say normal, does it, doctor? That says nonspecific STT wave changes. Don't you see those sometimes in early MIs, doctor? And he said, well, you can. He said, that's that's all I need to know, doctor. You thought it was normal. The machine called it correctly.
1: Yep. Well, you know, I think this uh, brings up the point that nonspecific ST changes are not normal. Exactly. They don't don't necessarily (laughs) reflect any kind of major pathology, but they are not a normal EKG. Now that doesn't mean your heart's not a- a- abnormal, but the EKG is abnormal, and um, you have to you have to acknowledge it because you're exactly right. If the machine thought it was normal, it would have said normal. Otherwise, it said something else. Well, that something else must be abnormal. There's either abnormal or normal. That's it. All right, guys. We uh, do. You want to do a
0: little wine, Greg? I need you to do want to do something wine. actually from Kirkland? They got any wine up there? <laughs> no, no, I don't have any Kirkland. But I, I, two, two sessions ago, I commented the fact that Kirkland is buying its wine from some of the best fitners. going. Well, you know,
1: I was going to tell you, everything I have on right now, you're watching me on Skype, everything, including my underwear, are from Kirkland yeah, wine. Rick
0: Rick, it's a visual I don't want to deal with. I am
1: fully dressed in a Costco outfit.
0: Good. Um, well, I'm going to give you two wines, uh, which I had while in Las Vegas. One of them is Robert Bailly Vineyards, um, uh, 2014. They do a pure Zinfandel Uh, And as everyone knows who listens to this show, Zinfandel is the principal blending grape of California. If you buy a Cabernet, most Cabernets, it'll be 55% Cabernet, and the rest of it will be Zinfandel. Um, Zinfandel was one of my favorite grapes. It's terrific. Uh, The 214 by Alley, Zinfandel Founding Farmers. Not Founding Fathers, Founding Farmers. Um, it is is just a superb wine. Everybody who's tasted this said it's from Napa, and it's thirty two bucks a bottle. It can't be, and uh, and and this is Henry's pick of the month. Um, it was one of the best. One of the best. And I like Zinfandels because they're heavy. You take these with uh, spaghetti or meat or something like that. This is a real wine. You know, buy it. Uh, it's good. The other one that I got a chance to taste because somebody with more money than God is was uh, buying wine, and that was a Cabernet Sauvignon Napa Valley and its uh, rosemary cake bread vintage, uh, vineyards. And this was great. It's a Napa Valley um, 2001, and uh, you won't believe this. Uh, when I looked this thing up, Parker says this is a 98% wine. This is a wine you stack up against the great European and French wines, and it was spectacular. Um, and uh, California, 2001, and uh, it's a little pricey. Uh, it's 90 bucks a bottle. But if somebody's buying and uh, you want to try great wine, this is a... This is killer. And um, go ahead, get it. It's good. There you go, Rick.
2: Say, Greg, do you, don't you think Greg is a little stuffy on this wine thing? Are you a wine connoisseur yourself? Um, no, I mean Greg. Yes. I, I mean, excuse I, me. I mean Rick.
1: Rick. God, no. I, I don't drink wine if I could avoid it. Um, you can't buy it at Costco.
0: Oh, you can buy lots of
1: wine at Costco. Costco is
0: the largest provider of wine in the United States as of last year. Did did you
1: note that it was also associated with the largest number of cars sold? It's second or third as the source of cars being sold through their car program. No, no, I'm I'm beer. I never got into wine. I think that there was something wrong with me because all adults seem to – Acquire a taste for wine and appreciate it, and I just never got there.
2: I didn't either. And two years ago, I'm, I I I had read an article about wine ratings ninety eights, ninety eights, ninety nines, hundreds, whatever they are, and uh, that they were somewhat uh, false in the sense that people could kind of buy their way into the ratings. Anyway, we had a neighborhood wine tasting. Five bottles, one from a from a. Very fine wine store here in Kirkland. The other four are from Trader Joe's. The only one that was universally despised by the entire neighborhood was the one we paid good money for at the great at the <laughs> wine store. <laughs> oh, everything else. Well, everything else was at least acceptable or really
0: good. It just goes to show
1: you that your neighbors have no taste in wine.
0: That's yeah, what I'm yeah. Hearing, Greg. You need a higher class neighborhood. Check number one <laughs> well, uh, and number two and, and number two. Uh, you may refer to them as peasants if you, if you so choose. Rick, are we about done for today? That's it, Chuck. Thanks so much
1: for doing this with us. Thanks uh, for doing this newsletter. We, we, I think we're going to get our hands on it and periodically uh, borrow things from it for, for future uh, discussions. And we'd like the opportunity, if you'd like to come on down the road, to come back and uh, give us your words of wisdom.
2: The whole point of this is to get people thinking about things that we miss and stop making mistakes. Gregory, what do you have to shovel snow today?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michigan. Uh, we got just a couple of feet. You guys are, what, 97 <laughs> degrees or something like that? It's in not Nevada. 75. You're coming out here tomorrow.
1: Uh, I, you're going to San Diego to Ronit Levin. Give her some bad advice, I guess.
0: Well, that's exactly right. Expensive and
1: bad advice, I'm sure.
0: Expensive <laughs> bad advice, and I'm proud of it. So... uh that's, uh, that's it, ladies and gentlemen, for the November issue of Risk Management Monthly. Bye-bye.